Welcome to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Kamidi. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Javad Malik, uh, a well-known figure in UK cybersecurity circles. And he has graced us with his presence and has a very interesting story. Um, I thought one of the more interesting things was in college, when he started working on security teams, he worked for what he called a major financial bank uh, in the UK, and there were four people on the security team. So that's where he started, and to see where cybersecurity has evolved to the present, uh, we touch on all of the moments in between and and where we think cyber is going. So without further ado, Javad Malik. Hello. Hey, Javad, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How about yourself? All right. Uh, Yeah, so welcome to the podcast. Um, For our listeners who may not be as familiar with uh, your background as the rest of the cyber community, could you tell us a little bit about your journey through InfoSec, how you started, um, and then how you have ended up at Node before? Yeah, sure. So, you know, every time I, I think about my journey, it, it just seems unreal that I've been working for so long. Because in my mind, I think I still feel like I'm mid-20s, late, <laughs> late, late 20s or something. You may not be the only one afflicted by that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll start counting it down and I'm like, wow, I've been working in the industry for about 20 years now. And uh, so i done a sandwich degree, which is like where you study for two years at university uh, and then you take one year out to do industrial work placement and then you come back and you finish your degree. And at that time, I um, I applied for hundreds of jobs, what what felt like hundreds. I'm pretty sure it was in the hundreds. Um, uh, but I got offered one job and that was for the IT security team at, at a bank. And so I thought, hey, I have no idea what this is, but it's it's a job. It pays uh, £10,800 for the year which was a lot of money as a student. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like I was making more money a month than I was getting in my student grant every, every quarter. So it was a lot of money and uh, it was, it was a chance to go work and I really enjoyed it. It was, I mean, it was a very small team. There's about four or five people uh, doing IT security for the whole bank. Uh, They, they, they seemed to like me as well. And they offered me a job back once I finished my degree. So I, I went back there. And I, I stuck I stuck with it. Um, the, the great thing is that having got in at the ground floor at the bank uh, in their security team, I, I had a chance to evolve as their, their security capabilities evolved. So we went from a team that was just setting up accounts and resetting passwords and setting permissions to uh, evolving into like a team that also done monitoring as challenges evolved and like, you know, alerts and password management uh, then going into consultancy, like, you know, how, what are our policies, uh, compliance, audit, all, all, those, all those kinds of things. I'm sure so, I'm sure the evolution of that team is probably a good benchmark tracking of kind of InfoSec as a whole, right? When you told me that there were four people on the security team for a bank, <laughs> I mean, that just sounds ludicrous now. Um, given that there are entire, you know, C-level departments uh, within organizations now devoted just to security. 
That's right. That's right. And it, it was one of those things that you saw as so. So I, if if I recall correctly, in '99, I think it was around that time they introduced one of their first firewalls, or they started deploying firewalls then. And that was a new concept for for all of us. And I I, I remember very clearly sitting with one of our guys saying, "I have no idea what this is," and he sat there trying to explain to me the whole concept and. IPs and you know ports and all that kind of good stuff, but but that, that's basically how basic it was. Now we talk about hey AV and firewalls, they're dead. Yes. But I was there <laughs> when they, when they were being rolled out. So yeah, that really dates me. Um, okay, cool. Well, then after the bank, um, how did you move into the next stage? So after the next stage, I, I went independent. I went contracting for for a few years. That's where the money was, and I didn't have to keep up to date with so many things. Um, I done that for a few years. Um, on the side, I started blogging and I started making videos. I, I was just, I just enjoyed YouTube from 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 one of its early uh, stages. And I used to look at people, think, "Hey, I could do that," uh, but then I didn't have really an idea of what to make. So I thought, "Well, I work in security. Let's just make videos around security." And that's kind of like how how that progressed. Um, based on that, I I got offered a job uh, when I was approached and I interviewed and everything to to go be an industry analyst at Four Five One Research. They're they're an analyst mm-hmm. firm, much like a Gartner, a Forrester, IDC. They're, yeah. they're they're one of those kind of firms. So that was really great because it, it sort of like took my career down down this other other path where. Um, I, I've had all this background of working in security. Uh, now it was a time to understand the uh, financial side of it, the vendor side of it, how things come together, where the money comes from, where it goes. And and uh, and obviously there's a lot of writing and research that's involved in that. So although it wasn't hands-on implementing security anymore, it was still very much in the weeds of the security industry at large. And that gave me a very different perspective. I, I, I gained a lot of respect for vendors when, when I worked in that job because I realized how how much the effort they actually put into making products and uh, and uh, serving their customers, but a, a large majority of them at least. Okay, um, yeah, I appreciate that as, uh, as working with a vendor. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's very easy. as So, so I, I look back at my time prior to 451 and I was just like I think how a lot of people are you go to a conference and you you just look at vendors as, as an avenue you should get some free swag and um, you know bash them online but what, once you actually start speaking to them and there's so many super smart people that work at so many companies and as an analyst I think one of the best things was that I got to speak to people who are way smarter than me every single day of the week. They were like founders and CTOs of like small startups and even larger, larger companies. And they, they, they have like, you know, they've dedicated a lot of time into understanding a problem problem and then how to, how to fix it and take it to market. And, and that sort of stuff is just very, very uh, unique to someone like me who comes from a pure security technical background uh, this was all very, very new for me, and it, it just opened my eyes in in many ways. Yeah, I mean that's good. That's good to hear in terms of that's how we all should challenge ourselves, right? I mean, part of the reason of doing this podcast is also to talk to people smarter than myself. Um, so that's good. And then, so I think you've come full circle. So you started client side, and then you were independent, and you went analyst side, 
And then after that, you went vendor side? Yep. Then I went to the completely the dark side, went to Vendorland. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I went to Alien Vault, uh, which is a company that last year was acquired by Mm AT&T Cybersecurity. But I was there like uh, advocate, spokesperson, evangelist, whatever term you'd like to to use. so, so that was a great role for me because I, I felt like I, I had the, the industry background, I had the analyst background, and the whole role was based around basically um, educating the masses. It, it, a lot of it's just like bringing security to the forefront of people's mind. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's very much a PR role as opposed to a marketing role. So it's mm-hmm. all about raising awareness. It's not about pulling people to the products. Okay. Um, so, so that was a great journey um, acquired um, through through exit right, by AT and T last year, uh, fantastic exit. Uh, so then I started thinking, well, you know, what what's next? Uh, a company like AT and T, they've got all the resources in the world. They don't really need uh, people like me to go out and, and try to educate. They 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 they've got enough money. They can buy buy out billboards and they right. they own stadiums yeah. and <laughs> things like that. What was little like me going to do? And and so that was a long long thought process uh, for me, and I, I arrived at the conclusion somewhat some, somewhat through to uh, through, through uh, and and the opportunities that presented that you know the human side is is an area which uh, you know we 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 often neglect. Uh, even this year at RSA, I, I think someone I can't remember who, but someone said, well, if you wander around the floor at RSA, you'd you'd think that ninety percent of the industry work in a sock. Because that's kind of like where a lot of the the products pitch themselves at, mm. um, and and that's an important sort of part of the solution. But the, the 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 human side, or trying to get people to understand what what where all of the risks are coming from, is uh, is often underlooked. So I ended up uh, joining No Before, which does exactly that. It focuses on on the human side of of security. Uh, it, so it does that through, you know, some simulation like like phishing and other social engineering attacks. But but then it has this whole library of content available to to educate and and inform users as to what to do. And and, and is it, that is it, your new role similar to Alien Vault in terms of advocacy or writing on their behalf? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So it's it's similar role. It's advocacy. It's like writing, speaking at conferences, uh, just just getting people. Uh, aware or, or, or just getting people to think that, you know, this is, this is a challenge. This is an issue we need to think about because, you know, you can, you know, solve the technical side to, to a large degree, uh, but there'd always be an opening where, you know, you could have the best systems in the world, but if someone just receives a plain email that says, Hey, I'm your CEO, send me some money. Um, your, your, your filters aren't really going to catch that. And that, that user could fall for that. Uh, similarly, even even like social media is a great example. Um, you know, even if you've got all your network locked down, if someone DMs you on Twitter because that's maybe how you you know sometimes your colleagues communicate or 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 they WhatsApp you or or, or some or, or send you an email on LinkedIn. Um, you know, h- how do you know whether there's something in there that's going to they're going to click on? It's going to take them to some malicious site or they're going to give away some information yes exactly or if you know even if they're inside your network and and we hear this all the time that you have forbidden that traffic through your firewall controls well okay so they step out for a, a coffee at 
Starbucks or they stop on the way in and that's not secure. And then the device is compromised and, you know, then how, how is your network possibly going to solve that, that problem? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think also returning to what you'd said at RSA about the SOC, you know, you can sell into the SOC and you can have these capabilities that increase visibility or offer threat Intel, but also I think part of our job could be to reduce the overwhelming workload of the SOC by securing the human front first, right? So then you're you're just, let's help the SOC manage um, threats by just reducing the number of them that they have to do. That's right. That's right. And, 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 you know, when you look at recent breaches, like a lot of breaches, a lot of them can be, linked back to some form of human error, um, whether it be someone just like, like if you look at ransomware, mm-hmm. you know, phish, phishing still is the primary infection vector for, for, for that. It, it's not someone dropping a, a zero day or, or something like that. I mean, you, you have some some examples of other other ways, but by far, you know, if you, it, it's still the fundamentals that that we're working on. The, the, sometimes the the reality or the delivery mechanism changes, so or, or the infrastructure changes, moves from on-prem to the cloud or from managed services to to uh, to hosted or, or what have you. But you know the the, the outcome is, is still the same. Right. You can keep banging on the castle walls. You can look for uh, cracks to sneak through, or you can just compromise one of the people who's walking in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay, great. Cool. Um, it strikes me, uh, listening to your journey, that you kind of had, um, you struck at a golden time in like the late 90s to now means that you have seen um, enterprise security and information systems sort of evolve from what it sounded like was uh emphasis on infrastructure, um, you know, building out projects for other teams to adoption of what we are now calling new digital channels, such as you were, you would have been around when social media was first being adopted by at the commercial level. And then now, um, the great, uh, digital transformation that we're seeing is as more, um, technologies are, uh, migrated to the cloud, so can you speak a little bit about what you've noticed or what you've seen in, in terms of that migration? Yeah. Well, if you could word the questions without making me sound so old. <laughs> <laughs> fair point. Fair point. I, I mean, I've, I've been around just as long. I know. I know. I'm joking. It's it, it's quite weird. Um, sometimes you get so caught up in, in day-to-day work that you need to consciously take a step back and and look at these things. Um, I, it's it's one of those weird ones where a lot of things have changed, uh, but a lot of things have stayed the same. A lot of the challenges have stayed the same. Um, what what has really changed a lot is um, adoption. So scale has changed mm-hmm. in 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 a lot of cases, and with that with that scale and adoption, the the impact has changed greatly. And that's something I think we, in the mid 2000s, early to mid 2000s, we saw. Uh, I mean, to, uh, the, the below 2000, like about 2005 or so, 
we saw a lot of companies start to get bitten by that fact that they hadn't considered the impact changing with with this greater adoption of technology or the greater reliance or how the business models were changing to make use better use of technology so so there were a lot of companies were moving away from uh, or they were complementing their bricks and mortar businesses with an online or a digital platform mm-hmm. uh, but they hadn't accounted for the 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 impact that shift would have. So if you were like in '99, I, I remember there was like a precursor to online banking, and there was only some high value customers. It was kind of like a pilot. Yeah, like a concierge uh, and, service or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like they could go on, and there was very limited functions they could they could they could perform on it. And I was asked to make a change to one of the, the, the it was on NT4 backend. That, and NT4, okay. You, yeah. You, you dated yourself. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a new technology. It still is called new technologies. <laughs> um, so I made a change and I accidentally um, cascaded the permissions. There was that, that little tick box you could check and mm-hmm. it copies the permissions to all the subdirectories. And that overwrote some permissions and basically knocked the whole system offline. But, <laughs> oops, <laughs> I, I, yeah. And so five minutes later, there was a massive incident. Uh, it was a priority one incident in our queue. And my boss is like, hey, do you know anything about this? And I was like, uh, let me take a look. And you know that that feeling you have where like, you know, your stomach just yeah. has that yeah. thinking feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. I'm never going to find employment again. Um, so I, I started looking, poking around and I said, OK, I'll go into the instant recovery meeting. Uh, but before I went in there, I I thought, hmm, um, OK, let's go on the server. OK, let's look at the logs. Yeah, it was definitely me. I made these changes and I may have accidentally deleted the logs on the server. <laughs> so I went into the instant meeting and I said, oh, it looks like permissions are wrong, but uh, I can't find any evidence of what happened. Clearly, it's the job of a madman. And they were like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah. I said, okay, give me give me 20 minutes. I'll, I'll go and see if I can fix the permissions. So I went back and I and I fixed out all the permissions. I you know, looking through the documentation, manually went through, sorted out all the permissions and came back. And half hour later, it was all up and running. And they were like, okay, cool. Well, it was down for this long. We might as well just like, you know, keep it offline for, for the rest of the day and just run some tests, make sure that nothing else falls over. And, you know, it, it, it was kind of like one of those things that, I was fortunate it happened back then when the impact was really low. Right, but uh, still, re- you know, proportional and relative to the time, it must have exactly. seemed like a really yeah. huge deal. It felt like a really huge deal, but even the customers didn't see it as a massive deal because the expectation of the technology to be available all the time wasn't there either. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I am irrationally angry when my banking app is down for even like scheduled maintenance. And of course I'm trying to log on at said obscene hour, like either really late at night or early. So yes, it makes sense for them to do it then. But even then I'm just really put out. <laughs> it's uh it's totally unreasonable. But that is the that is now the consumer expectation. It is. It is. And and, and this just goes to show I think if you look at uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Simon Wardley and his maps. Uh, if you're not, I just do a search for Simon Wardley 
um, mapping. And he's got a whole free book on on Medium that he's written out. And it actually is it, it's really good as a way of looking at how technologies evolve over time and what are the components. And along the x-axis, you've got the actual evolution of technology. And what we've seen is things over a very short period of time in the last 10, 15 years have gone from their genesis or, or custom technologies to now where they're just commodity. They're like utility. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you never expect to pick up your phone and not get a dial tone. Yes. Like I've dated, I've dated myself again right. with that. That's right. <laughs> but but it, And similarly, people don't expect to fire up their laptop and not get internet and not get access to to resources that, that they use online. And I think that's changed a lot. Uh, security itself, the, the concepts haven't changed. The, the challenges, they're roughly the same. If you look back at articles in the news 10 years ago, they were still talking about sh- skill shortage and mm-hmm. misconfiguring stuff and human error. And today they're talking about a, a lot of the same things. It's just the 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 fact that we're so dependent on these technologies and they form such an integrated portion of our life. We don't wait for the nine o'clock news. We go on Twitter when everything or Facebook when anything happens. Right. And it's Um, not so much, it's even uh, our dependency on it. It's like um, the, it seems that the adoption rate of new technologies has also created uh, cross dependencies on one another, right? So you have, um, you've, you've migrated your CRM to the cloud and then that is dependent upon, uh, the security protocols that you, you know, so like each other form of technology is dependent. So it does feel like if one domino falls, uh, the cascade will be much more catastrophic than, than, you know, it felt like the systems were more siloed. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the, that's the beauty of when that's generally what happens when you commoditize something. Um, the the technology gets pushed further down the stack where mm-hmm. it's invisible to the customer. When, when you turn on your light switch at home, you know there's a power plant somewhere. Most people aren't really generally bothered or care whether right. that's biofuel or whether it's burning fossil fuels or whether it's solar or wind farm, all they know is that they're getting a standard electrical current coming into their house that powers their light switch. Um, And that could fail at many points along the way. But if you turn on the switch and the light doesn't come on, you don't care, you're going to complain. And that's exactly where we are with with the uh, with the uh, with the computing, the digital age today. It, like you said in your example, if your CRM's in the cloud and you can't access it, you don't care whether it's the software at fault, the infrastructure, the platform, the the internet, the cable, you, your Wi-Fi. You just know that it's not working and it should be working, and that's what drives that kind of anger, I think, or that frustration. Yeah, and I'm also curious as. Um, new technologies emerge, there tends to be this uh, gap or chasm uh, between those who are at the front lines of the practice um, versus like the more general understanding of it. So for example, I used to work at an agency and I was in the SEO department and the questions that our clients would ask were essentially three to five years behind what best practices were. And I think we ha- we went through this moment where there was such a sur- surge in uh, tools and tech that a lot of them were adopted 
without like a, a full understanding of what they entailed. So as an example, again, in the agency, we used Google Hangouts to communicate a- across, uh, you know, normal chains. But then like the IT department took up Slack. And I don't know that they just sort of like got this tool because they thought it was useful, but I don't know if they considered the full ramifications of now you have two different sort of chat layers. Is there a vulnerability in Slack relative to your normal security protocols and the like. So I think that we're just in this moment where the, the reality of the risks is now entering that general consciousness. It's like, Oh, right. It's not just, I locally installed Facebook, the app it's I'm sending my personal data into what is essentially a cloud environment into which I have no visibility or transparency. Yeah, I I think that that is a fundamental shift, and and like you said, it the change sort of begins, it happens, and people don't even realize, and then they start using it, and it's only with, there is that definite lag in between actually starting to use it and bef- and then realizing, oh, this is what I'm actually doing. Uh, by which point you're you're so embedded into it or so dependent on it that it's hard to pull back or to change behavior. Right. Facebook was for cat photos and now I'm being, you know, misinformed by nation states. Yeah, yeah. Or, or in my case, Facebook was great and then my parents joined it and oh. now I... Uh... <laughs> like, now I must abandon it. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, so in terms of issues in information security that have penetrated into the general public's consciousness. Um, I was interested in your thoughts on 2018 as the year of the data breach. You know, we had 150 million records um, compromised through Cambridge Analytica on Facebook. We had um, databases that were unsecured with 60 million LinkedIn users. The end of the year was half a billion records through the Starwood Marriott uh, merger. And then right at the beginning of 2019, we had the collection one dump quickly followed in succession by collections two through five. And it just seems that the data breaches continue to grow in size and scope. And I'm just curious as to what do you think are the lessons that the public can take away from what we learned in 2018? I'm, I'm sure we're bound to get more in 2019, but what would be something that we could use to teach the general public about uh, what we've learned from these data breaches? Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think there's a level of responsibility to make things better at, at every level. So that goes from the, the actual provider, uh, the, the, the developer, the, the promoter, all the way through to the, the actual user. And, and different. And, and this is where I think, you know, when you look at the intention behind uh, regulations like GDPR, for example, it's there to say to companies, in effect, hey, you know, this, this data that you love, it's, it's, a, it's toxic, it's radioactive. So only take that much which you can safely maintain and wear your Hazchem suits when, when dealing with it. Because that's the the how, how data is. Um, companies still have this 
And th this is a weird shift because companies now realize how much value there is in data, but they might not always have a plan of what to do with the data, but they know, hey, if we collect all the data, we can find a way to maybe monetize it somehow or... Right, it, collect it all just in case. Just in case, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's so cheap to store the data, it's easy. You just get someone to develop an app and front end and it throws it into an AWS bucket that maybe you haven't secured properly, <laughs> so it's publicly visible. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I think that... You know, the, 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 there's that aspect of it. And I don't think there's an easy answer to that yet because like so much of the online sort of ecosystem is now designed around that targeted advertising and, you know, uh, sort of sentiment analysis and getting to know you as a, as a, as a person through digital identity is just such big business. But um, I think on, on the other hand, what, what it is, is that, okay, so many breaches have happened. It's almost like bolting the the, the stable door once the ho uh, horse is bolted. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do with that? So we know that there are bad guys out there that are using that data actively. They'll use credential stuffing. So, so they'll take your ID and password yep. and they'll try across uh, a bunch of services and try to get in. Um, but technology on the technology side, you can actually use that information as kind of like a, a threat sort of uh, threat feed, uh, for lack of a better term, and say, okay, these are all the passwords that we know, or these are all the users that are uh, compromised, let's proactively go and force them to change their passwords, or let's prevent, uh, let's add these passwords for these users to our blacklist, so let's prevent them from, from using that. And, and I know, like, Microsoft has implemented some of that into uh, their uh, Office 365 uh, offering. So, mm -hmm. so I think there's there's stuff that that can be used in that manner. Um, fundamentally, I think it's it's one of those cases, a bit like you know that that lag, is that we've spent these years giving up this information or you know letting companies save all the information, and now we're realizing what the impact of it is. Um, so it, it requires a fundamental rearchitecting of how we how we actually treat data, save them, uh, and deal with it, and and actually assign the value to it in the future. Maybe in the future we'll find that everyone's just been compromised so badly, like now we have to come up with a whole new set of identifiers or or the value of the data is is minimized. Yeah, I think I was talking with um, Evelyn D'Souza uh, at another occasion, and she is um, a proponent of you know, privacy vaults and sort of collecting only the data that which is necessary and also assigning like a true value to that data. So like, what is it worth to you so that the personal data becomes a type of uh, currency, which accurately reflects its value in the marketplace, um, which I thought was an interesting idea. I think we're also at a point where the public is beginning to understand the implications of the data breaches. Um, but I also think there is now a, a new hurdle to overcome, which is that as a, if you're working for an enterprise and you're reading the headlines and every day you breathe one more sigh of relief that it wasn't your company in the headlines, <laughs> um, that that's not really, you're not really out of the woods, right? Because if one of your employees, and most likely they are involved in one of these massive data breaches, essentially someone has 
like this treasure trove of information with which to socially engineer somebody, right? Somebody can go through, they got nothing but time. They can go through that, those databases and see like, oh, I just noticed this person is a mid-level IT analyst at, you know, JP Morgan Chase. Let's see what we can get him to click on and uh, maybe I can fish his credentials and get inside the company, right? So it's not even like JP Morgan is not hacked, but it could be vulnerable as a result of like the Marriott hack or the, the LinkedIn hack or even the Facebook hack. It's sort of like a cumulative danger. There is. And, and this is where I think uh, sharing this information, this intercompany cooperation uh, becomes really important because it's not a competitive issue. It's not a competitive advantage. Uh, what, what you're actually providing is a business advantage to each other. Because if if I go and I hack or get data from Bank A of all their customers, what's probably the first thing I'm going to do? I want to take that data and go to Bank B and open accounts under their names. Right. So it's in Bank A's interest to share that information with Bank B as quickly as possible and be as transparent as possible so that what they can do is then all the banks can say, hey, okay, this is this, this is this, let's put in some extra controls, Let, let's do some extra validation, let's not just allow them to remotely open up an account. And I think this is something that that's needed between companies. The more you can share this data in in, in private, it's not, I'm not suggesting you you, you make it public uh, for, for everyone to just see this, the information, but privately amongst each other. And and I think this this collaboration is is really, really um, you know, it, it's vital for uh, for for the future. Yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely right. Have you seen um, examples of uh, similar levels of collaboration or like a consortium in other industries? You know, it doesn't have to be data related or even information security related. But is there an example where that's um, proven out uh, to help an industry as a whole? So, I mean, we, we have in, in security, we do have like, um, uh, in, yeah, we have like the cloud security Alliance yeah, or, or ISACs, um, mm-hmm. um, which like, you know, uh, which, which are across vertical. So you have financial services, ISACs, you have retail ISACs. Yeah. You have those, those kinds of things in place. Um, they're, 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 they're very good. Uh, I think over time we'll see better evolution, and standardization, because I think that's one of the things. It's like standardization is is one of the key components of like making everything a lot easier. Um. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. So this is a, a question that we ask all of our guests, um, which is knowing what you know, which is um, probably more than the average person on the street. Um, what scares you the most today in information security? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I think the thing that scares me the most from as, as a security professional working in the industry is sometimes the, the blinkered view the industry has sometimes, um, on the impact that could happen in wider society if they don't do their job well enough or properly enough. And as 
and there, there's this big overlap now where security actually impacts or has has a big influence in other areas. So privacy was traditionally a very sort of separate thing, but now there's it's almost indistinguishable in some areas. Like how how do you separate privacy from security? Or, or uh, integrity is is always been part of security. And when we look at things like say fake news, for example, um, you know it, it becomes a security problem. And we still sometimes get caught up in arguments around, well, is this hashing function better for passwords or not? Or, you know, is TLS version this, uh, should it be deprecated or, or not? Whereas when you look at something like the impact of like account takeover bots or, um, or, or, or fake news or, or, the, or the fact that companies are getting compromised and, and like millions of records are, are, are taken out and used for nefarious purposes, um, there are some real world impacts on it, and we've seen it in allegedly in in, in world politics, and and we've seen you know allegedly like in some places like Rohingya or India, wherever where, mm-hmm. where people have actually lost their lives because of 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 these things. So so that's the thing that scares me the most that sometimes the security industry doesn't realise the the responsibility that's on them. And sometimes it's about overlooking some of the, the minor issues or, or trivial issues, which were really, really important maybe a, a, a decade ago, but that they've just become commoditized. You know, let, let's, we, we've solved that problem. Let's, let's stop talking about whether passwords are dead or, or, or they're dying or what have you. It, it's all right. That, that's, it's there. It's being managed. It's, it's, it's fine. You know, add two factor onto it or, or, or what have you. But, um, you know, let's think about some of these real, real issues. And I think the lack of focus on that is something that that worries me. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And this is a going to be a very poor analogy, but I've heard it many times that uh, information is the this century's oil, right? It's it's the commodity. Well, if we're going to belabor that analogy, then what you're saying is, you know, it was incumbent upon the oil engineers and the geologists to make sure that the transfer and storage, et cetera, of that commodity was safely done, right? We didn't have like uh, gas or petrol stations that <laughs> were just flaming out on every corner. Um, and so if if we are working in and with the most precious commodity of our time, then it is incumbent upon us to do so with great care and intent. That, that, that I think that's uh, spot on. Yeah, that's absolutely there. Okay. Well, our, our motto here at Safeguard Cyber is without fear. We try to try to stay positive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cyber is uh, full of uh, plenty of fear. So let me flip the question and ask, okay, given where you are, given what you understand, what is giving you the most hope? And um, that could be industry related or or otherwise. Uh, mm, I think you know we. It's easy to overlook all the advancements that have happened. It's like we were talking about just just earlier. Uh, we now expect things just to work. Uh, things don't just work just because they one day decide to work. There's a lot of effort that's put into it. There's a lot of design. There's a lot of what have you. Um, internet is super fast and super great. Like, you know, you get more power on your mobile phone than you did on your desktops even 10 years ago. Uh, right. I mean, we're so talking everything- We're talking over an, 
essentially an international call, which would have cost us a fortune like oh, yeah. a decade ago. Oh, yeah. It would be like, yeah, you want to do this call? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's free. And and things just, just work. And because of how technology has enabled this, now we're getting to a point where, um, you know, a lot of technologies can be compressed and made available for a, a very easy uh, I, I, I'm not going to say it's an affordable price point, but because of the example I just, I'm just going to use, but, but say, for example, the new Apple Watch with its heart monitor in it, and it can indicate when uh, you, you, you might have a heart attack or, or there's some abnormality, is, is something that, you know, 20 years ago, people would have thought, wow, that's the best thing. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not curing cancer, but it's the next best thing. And when you see how, so much of this technology has become miniaturized or become portable that ambulances or uh, law enforcement or anyone they they they're so much better connected the infrastructure just works a lot a lot better sure there are security problems there's internet of things is like you know really insecure and and what have you but you know for all of that when you architect it properly and 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 you apply the right controls it's it's a, it's a great thing and i i think it it's we we should take the positives it's not always to accept the change and i'm going to sound like my dad now when i was like yeah everyone's like you know the world's going to shit because <laughs> <laughs> because people don't remember everything it's like he he keeps telling me i used to know all my friends phone yes, numbers off same, by heart how many numbers do you same. know <laughs> and our guy's like i don't know my phone remembers them for me and goes see that's what i'm saying you're becoming dumb the technology is becoming smart <laughs> but but my argument to that is always well look no i'm freeing up brain space so i can think of more, more important things as opposed to remembering a, a, a bunch of numbers and he's like like what and and then I'm, and then, and then I, argument I, and ensues yeah <laughs> perfect well um thank you very much for taking the time um and i i know it's uh getting towards the end of the day there but uh yeah we really appreciate it and i think we will um bump into you uh at an at a number of shows this year i'm sure yes i'm sure we will i look forward to it thanks for having yes. me it's been really enjoyable. thank you george Well, as ever, any conversation with Javad is interesting. Um, of particular note uh, to me was his focus on how security as an industry should be focusing on the larger problems. I think it's easy in any field of expertise to get stuck in the weeds um, or to miss the forest for the trees if we want to extend the botanical analogy. Um, but I think his call to action to focus on the outcomes that really help people and keep them safe, because we are now in a world where cybersecurity has uh, physical security implications as well, is a very important one. Um, but moving on to the news we are following this week. One story that State Scoop put out last week was about how hackers are phishing small and medium-sized businesses by pretending to be local government officials and other agency sites. So they're actually spoofing official websites, which are pretty hard to differentiate between, and then uh, hacking these small businesses. And a financial impact like that can shut them down for good. Yeah, this is an insidious intersection of two things that we've 
talked about before, which is that small to medium businesses are the most attacked sector. Um, they are largely seen as kind of low hanging fruit in terms of security protocols. We've also talked about individuals trying to hack city governments and, you know, not least of which is Baltimore being in the headlines for the last few weeks with the Robin Hood ransomware attack. Um, and so now we have this intersection of the two where you pretend to be a government site and government sites are generally well trusted and you are sending these emails or reaching out to small and medium businesses to say you need to update some kind of registration and it's just a, a perfect mirror of existing sites. And according to State Scoop, the some of the government sites that have been imitated um, are those belonging to San Mateo, California, Tampa, Florida, North Las Vegas, and Dallas County, Texas. So these are areas that may not be major metropolitan centers, but they certainly have a lot of businesses in their sphere. So this could be a wide-ranging attack. And also, I guess, most uh, salient in this article is that it appears, um, according to researchers at Lookout, that this uh, level of activity has been going on for almost four years. That's unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Well, as ever, we thank Abby Bruce for our sound design, Matias Cefaletti for our theme music. If you like what you've heard, uh, please subscribe, give us a rating, um, or throw us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, until then, until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.